Several times a year I teach uh, <coughs> a few classes at the University of Hawaii. And uh, a lot of students come that have no experience with meditation. <coughs> and I have 45 minutes to teach them all about Vipassana. Uh, and it's hard to distill this practice uh, into a few minutes of talking and then have them actually do the practice. It, it's uh, not so easy to do that in 45 minutes. And I try to emphasize that the practice is experiential and that from doing it, <clears throat> from opening to our moment-to-moment experience and being with life as it is, and that, that's a very different than wanting life to be a certain way. It's actually, this is a revolution because instead of wanting life to be a certain way, we're surrendering to life as it is and experiencing it very directly as it is through the mindfulness. So by paying attention to our own life experience on purpose, we develop wisdom. And the wisdom feels wonderful. Understanding is the happiness that this practice is meant to bring about for us. So we practice for this happiness. It's a different kind of happiness. It's a kind of subtle happiness. It's a happiness of peace with life as it is. One of the classes I taught this year, after 45 minutes I rang a bell, and this woman raised her hand and just had these tears of joy. She'd never practiced And she said it was the first time she ever really heard a sound, purely, you know, without being caught in thinking about it, uh, but just that direct experience of hearing. And in that moment, she understood. And she understood what we were doing. We get these kind of glimpses when we practice. That's usually what helps us come back to retreats. It's what um, brings us to retreats. Because we can't often maintain that continuity of mindfulness. And we, we, we forget why we're doing the practice. There's a lot of doubt that comes up. You know, why walk around like zombies instead of going swimming on a day like today? Um, there's, a, there's a lot of doubt that can come up of why we're doing it. Because there are times when we forget why we're doing it. We don't have that kind of glimpse of freedom, of just being here so purely and understanding. Those moments are really powerful. Um, We get a glimpse of the happiness of truly being here in the present moment. And even if we're mindful just for one moment, that's a moment of peace in the moment of not being lost in the past, not being lost in the future, of, of not being lost in conceptual thought, but actually being here fully, in that moment we're free from any mental torment. And they're, they're simple at times. They might not be that we're so flooded with joy, uh, but there's a, there can be a, a, just a quiet, a simple calm or a simple quiet. Uh, and it tastes, it tastes so wonderful. And it's so easy for us to forget. It's so funny how it can change from uh, understanding why we're doing it in those moments and then not having any clue why we would do it. One of the things that I found helpful over time in doing the practice was to be grateful for those moments of being awake instead of wanting them to be happening all the time. That when I would come back from being really lost in thinking, whether it was five minutes or 20 minutes or (laughs) seemed like a whole day of being lost, uh, when I would finally pull out of the thinking and be here, instead of judging how long I would be gone, 
and, and hating myself and not feeling like I was able to do the practice, I would feel this gratefulness for being awake just in that moment. And we can do that. We can, we can, any time we notice that we're awake, that we've come back from being lost, we can feel that joy in just that moment of being awake. We're actually planting seeds of mindfulness. It's like we're planting a garden, but we don't always see so clearly in this process uh, that we're planting seeds like we plant seeds in a garden. And then we cover them with soil, and then we wait. You can't make this process of a garden grow. You have to do the best you can to create the conditions for it to happen but then you have to get out of the way and let the sun and the rain and the winds and the soil uh, bring about the sprouting of the plant. In the same way, any time that you come back to the present moment, that remembering or recollecting to be here, that gives us that moment. And that's a lot. If mindfulness just did that, that would be plenty. But it not only gives us the moment, it gives us our life in that moment. But it also plants a seed for another moment of remembering to happen. It's just that we can't control that. We can't control when that moment of remembering to be back in the present moment will happen. But it is. It will happen. So that's how every time we, we come back to the present moment, it, can, it conditions the mind to remember again to come back to the present moment. When you start to see that happen over time, there's more faith in that process, because it, it is a process that happens, but you can't control when it will happen. It takes a kind of courage because of that. I think of the process of meditation very similarly to having a garden. And say it's a flower garden, there's times when you'll see that there's lots of buds on the flowers. I find uh, this time of year at IMS to be a very inspiring time to practice. And I've practiced here for months at this time. And just to see the waves of different flower beds uh, here blooming and watching them go from just sprouting out of the ground to budding up and each bud flowering in, a, in, in its own way, in its own time. Uh, this is how mindfulness works for us. Each of us is like a different bud and we open to life in our own way in our own time. I'm always grateful for whoever it was who started these gardens. Sometimes there's a priest, this used to be a a novitiate many, many years ago, and sometimes there's a priest that used to live here, he'll come by and I'll talk with him about the gardener who they had many years ago. Because they started, you can see, uh, in these fields and around the IMS how how wonderful that person was who started these gardens. And that's what we can do with our hearts. That's what the practice creates a garden in the heart for the mind. When we do open to life as it is, the only um, thing that's hard for us is that we don't get to pick and choose what we open to. When we open, we, we open to how life is. Uh, so life includes pleasure and pain and neutrality. And we tend to <clears throat> like the idea of opening if we only had to open to the good stuff. But unfortunately, <laughs> life isn't just the pleasant stuff. We, when we open, we open to everything, just like when a flower opens. It doesn't get to say, well, I'm not going to open to the wind today or the too much sun. Or It's not like that. <clears throat> we just open to however it is. 
when I first started practicing this practice, and I started to realize that probably at least 98% of my experience wasn't acceptable to me. And that was hard. That was one of the first things I noticed, is how little I accepted most of my experience. And if I looked closely, I usually would only accept peak experiences. Uh, and the rest was kind of like junk. It wasn't okay. So all of those, <laughs> rest of those moments, the 98%, uh, I just rejected as not being good enough. And so I tended to either be lost in my resistance to how life was, it wasn't what I wanted, or I would be rushing through my life. There'd be that polarity of not liking it or resisting or rushing through. I can say, after 20 years of practice, uh, that, that that has really changed for me. That I see that one of the most noticeable changes is how much more of my life I've been able to open to. It's not all what I've wanted to open to. It's not uh, like that, but it, it has been. That's the richness of being so much more fully here has changed dramatically. As we are able to open to more and more of our life, uh, out of that experience, our understanding grows. And so that what's happening in our human life is seeing, hearing, touching, tasting, thinking, <clears throat> smelling. Yet thinking tends to be what predominates most of our lives. And usually when we start meditating, we start to see that uh, we tend to be lost a lot in the past and the future. And because of being so lost in thinking, we miss a lot of our life. We experience so little of it, and the motivation tends to come from seeing that, the motivation to keep practicing will be because we, we resent that, you know. It's so painful to see that we're not here that much. And, we, and life is so short, life is so fleeting. You know, why is that? Why do we miss so much of it? Vipassana tends to um, be developing an awareness that includes all of the ordinariness of life. When we come on a retreat, we're not changing life in any way. You'll see that, you know, we're really, what's, what's more ordinary than the breath? Or being with sound? or walking, or eating. It's so incredibly ordinary. And sometimes people will say to me, in terms of the way I even teach, you know, you make spirituality seem so ordinary. It's like brushing your teeth. And I'll say, yeah. <laughs> you know, it really is. It, it's just incredible how what all we're doing is, is bringing this, this kind of awareness to life so that the ordinary becomes, um, it kind of, ra it has a radiance to it because we shine this awareness on it. We're not changing life in any way. We're just changing our awareness of it. Over time, one starts to have an understanding of the meditation as including all of our moments. You know, that we don't tend to single out sitting is more important than walking, although at the beginning I did that for years. I thought sitting was much more important than walking. I thought sitting was more important than anything. Uh, and that it just sometimes it takes time for us to develop that understanding that, yeah, it really is, each moment really is worthy of waking up to. It, any moment is a good moment to be awakened. Life has that quality of having 
being a beautiful day, and yet tonight there'll probably be more mosquitoes. You know, there's that there's that wonderfulness of the heat and the warmth, and yet uh, the other side of that is that there might be more mosquitoes, or we'll notice these flowers blooming, and yet there's a lot of flowers that are dying. Uh, I see so many chipmunks this year, and I see so many that have been hit by cars and are dead on the road. It, there's just this amazing contrast and paradox. There's so many butterflies flying, and I see them dead on the road. We can have a wonderful sitting, and then the next sitting will, will come in, and it's horrible. Just in one day, you can see this incredible change and shift from pleasure uh, and beauty to difficulty and pain. One of the reasons that we find out it's so difficult to actually be in the present moment is because life has this characteristic of so much change. We tend to feel so vulnerable and insecure because of it. We tend to want to hold on to our conceptual world because it makes it so much more solid and less insecure. All beings who take birth in this universe share this characteristic of life, of of vulnerability, of insecurity. It's a given. This early winter, I took an informal Ikebana class. Ikebana is a kind of um, meditative art from Japan of arranging flowers. It's usually done with a lot of rules. Uh, uh, many rules, which I never learned because this teacher decided to teach it without rules, which was uh, good for my kind of personality. (laughs) Uh, This teacher I had was wonderful because she just taught it with a uh, motivation of it being a joyful process rather than a struggle. She's a member of an organization that decided to send flower arrangements to the people in Japan that had suffered in the earthquake in Kobe. And I found it really wonderful that this group of people, instead of deciding to send blankets or food, which would be a really wonderful thing to do, they're a flower arranging organization and they decided to send flower arrangements There were so many people in shelters that they had to send only one arrangement per shelter. And as you can imagine, if you had been in an earthquake and lost your home and lost family members, it's very traumatic and the people in the shelters are in shock. It's very difficult in the shelters at times. And they heard the people, this teacher that I had heard back that sometimes at night that there'd be somebody who would go up to a flower arrangement when no one was looking and everyone was sleeping and snip off a flower and bring it back to their bed and sleep with that flower at night. I found that to be so moving. First that people would think of sending flowers and then to to feel that reassurance of the flower that was really helping these people cope with such loss and such difficulty. And I think of mindfulness like these flowers. You know, that's the power of mindfulness is similar to snipping off a flower and bringing it back to you, with you at night to sleep. It has that power of protection that helps us to cope with life as it is, to cope with the change and the insecurity. 
the root word of Buddha is bud, and it means one who wakes up as if from a deep sleep. It implies, of course, awakening. It's, it's, it's like, um, I think that you can get that sense of any time that you come out of being lost in thinking and you're actually here, how it feels like you've woken up from a deep sleep. It, it really is a feeling of awakening. That's what Buddha means. It means awakening. The Buddha said to make of ourselves a light. Uh, and that's what mindfulness helps us do. It helps us light up what's happening in the present moment on purpose. It's a non-judgmental attention that's so powerful. It is just like the spring sun that has the capacity to create the conditions for that opening of the flower bud. Mindfulness, that non-judgmental attention is the same thing as the, the kind of sun that has that capacity to help us open, to see clearly, to accept what's happening, and to not identify with what's happening. Mindfulness is that powerful. Mindfulness isn't about what somebody else says or tells you it is, and it's not about what we read. It's really something we have to experience, and we need to experience it with some kind of continuity through all the ups and downs, through forgetting why we're doing the practice. Uh, it's, it's a very deep journey. And once we start opening through the mindfulness, then there's a deepening of the seeing clearly. Any time we ask a question like, who am I? Or what is life? Or what is death? You know, free from my ideas about it. Any kind of inquiry, any questioning, uh, helps us to be interested in what's happening in the present moment rather than resisting how life is. And any question that helps you to look more closely at what's happening um, will bring about this willingness to be with life as it is. This is really important. It's like if you had a dark room, this questioning is like putting a light on in the room. It lights up the mind and this light lights up what's happening. It helps us to see clearly. The Buddha taught that when we can see clearly that this mindfulness will light up three characteristics of life, of existence. And there are characteristics of life that all beings share. And I've talked about it's the first two a bit. The first, the Pali word is anicca, and it means impermanence. It means change. This is this basic uh, fact of existence here in this world, that all of life, everything is changing. Anything that takes birth will die. Anything conditioned will pass away. It's a very profound um, teaching. And then the, the Buddha taught that because of this incredible profundity of change, that all life is moving in this way, that we all share a vulnerability, that we all share, all beings who take birth here in this universe share this insecurity. And it, it's, um, this means that experience itself is unsatisfactory, ultimately. It doesn't mean that life doesn't have pleasure. Of course, it has pleasure, but that it has this undependability because it changes so dramatically. And the third characteristic of life is anatta, and that's supposed to be the hardest for us to understand. The first two, if you live long enough, are pretty clear. Uh, the third one requires some close looking. It means that no matter how closely you look at your arm, a leg, 
an eye, a head, no matter how much you look closely at the mind and body or any other being uh, or existence, you can't find something solid and separate. That life, what we think of ourselves as I uh, or separate, is really just a momentary process of change. By understanding these characteristics of life on deeper and deeper levels, we start shifting from being interested in life as um, only meant to be yielding pleasure for us. You know, we start shifting from this pleasure-pain orientation to start being interested in all experience, because that's the truth because that's how life really is. Even if things are unpleasant or painful, as Steve has been talking about in the instructions, that we, we start trying to open to how life is, including the unpleasant and the painful, as well as the neutral and the pleasant. We, we come on a retreat and it, it, we shift so dramatically from a very busy life to a life of just being. You know, it's going from a life of a lot of doing to just being. And we take the energy that we usually are putting into doing things or to being distracted or to zoning out, you know, or pouting you know, or whatever we're doing with our energy, we tend to take it in a retreat and to use it to wake up. This is a big shift. You know, you've gone through a pretty big shift from coming in here yesterday, last night, and shifting to this really different world of taking your energy and paying attention to it in this way, so carefully. And usually when we come in a retreat, the first thing that will happen is we'll notice a lot of sleepiness and restlessness. And if we can handle that, keep going with that, often the next thing that we'll be up against is boredom. And there's this feeling that nothing's happening. And I feel like in this culture, this is one of the hardest things for us to cope with. It's, it's going against the culture to be willing to see if we can experience boredom and nothing's happening, rather than to do something about it, to distract ourselves from it. And it's the place that I see that we tend to get stuck, no matter where we are. It can be spiritually, we can get stuck here in a relationship, a marriage. We can get stuck here in, in any art we do or any work we do. There are these plateaus we hit because you know that it takes a certain amount of energy to go deeper in anything that we do in life. And it takes the willingness to be able to handle these places that nothing's happening and waiting there until there's enough energy to deepen rather than to run away. I found that learning to go through these spaces in meditation retreat helped me in my life to go through those spaces in relationship, in work, in art. It's, it's amazing how this is a place that uh, tends not to be so talked about, but that's so important for us. Most of the pain in our life is the resistance to what's happening. There's a kind of boredom that comes up from the resisting what's happening. And it's possible to, if there's enough energy, to, to go through that boredom and to go to a deeper place. All it takes is, is just learning how to wait and uh, be here lightly. To me, this is the whole art of life and the whole art of the practice. If we have low energy or if we have little energy, it takes patience uh, and it takes learning to rest the mind, rest the heart. 
In the meditation practice, what this means, that if we're sitting, it's learning how to be with the anchor very lightly. It doesn't mean that we're going to penetrate the deepest ultimate truth that sitting. You know, it means that uh, we'll just be in the moment with the movement of the breath or with sound or with the surface of the body. It's learning how to stay on the surface of the experience without abandoning the present moment in fantasy or lost in thought or judging ourselves that we're not doing it right. Uh, And when we're walking, it's learning just to be with the movement of the legs. And it's, it's like we're sinking into the present moment. There's so much energy in the universe. It's like if we're able to just be here lightly and wait there, the energy will come. It just, it will come, it's natural. If we're, if we're not using all that energy to distract ourselves and get lost, uh, it will come. It took me many years to understand this. First, it took me many years to understand that the amount of energy I had wasn't personal and that it, low energy happens and then medium energy happens and then high energy happens and then low energy happens. There'd be so many times where I'd be in a retreat and I'd try to figure out how to repeat the last sitting I had or the last walking I had uh, and I, I couldn't repeat it because the energy wasn't there at that time. And by trying to repeat it and re- trying to repeat it, I would even get tired and tired or, uh, until I'd have to give up and wait. Uh, it can be easier for you if you can see that the, the energy isn't personal. It'll come up, it'll go down, it'll go up, it'll go down. There's a kind of cycling that happens that I learned that if I could just kind of back off and be here lightly when there was low energy, the energy would build and then I would be able to see clearly and deepen and then that would disappear. I'd have to wait, trust, surrender to the low energy. And then after a while, the, 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 the concentration really helps with the low energy times. It's just learning to come back very lightly, come back very lightly. We can't make a flower open. You know, we can't make the practice deepen or unfold. It just happens, mainly by getting out of the way. Every aware step we take, every difficult sitting, every breath, uh, any time we come back to the present moment, that's contributing to our awakening. It isn't wasted. Getting lost is part of the process. You know, any time we're lost or we're struggling, remember that eventually the energy will come and we'll be able to see clearly and we'll learn something. We might learn in those moments how to open to work with anger or loneliness or boredom. We're learning how to work with all these different ways that life unfolds for us rather than getting rid of the anger and the boredom and the loneliness. We learn how to experience them. The moments of struggling are incredibly important steps. The moments of getting lost, they're part of it. Mindfulness and interest, as I've said, will light up the three characteristics of existence, anicca, change, dukkha, vulnerability, insecurity, anatta, that there's no solid, separate self. Sometimes we'll see through the lens of impermanence when we're on retreat. Sometimes we'll see through the lens of vulnerability. Sometimes we'll see through the lens of 
insubstantiality of experience. By surrendering to these different characteristics, we see the truth of life more deeply on deeper cycles, and there's a maturing process in this, in this cycling. Freedom, which is what this practice is ultimately all about, freedom is the maturing of understanding of how life is. Impermanence has so many aspects. Sometimes it's hard for me to know where to begin or what to focus on. If you look at just one day, if you took today and you think of just how many mind states you've been through today, it's extraordinary. If you just took one minute and looked at how much change was happening. One of... um, my favorite things is when the three-month retreat is happening and um, when somebody gets sick, they have to go down to the Berry Clinic. And if you can imagine after about two months of doing this, you'd probably be able to describe your symptoms pretty well. Uh, <laughs> and sometimes I like to go down there and just talk to the doctors who've talked to somebody who's come from here because they say that they have to stop the people from describing the symptoms after about 15 minutes. They just they don't want to hear anymore. You know, because they'll say, well, you know what was happening in your abdomen or whatever, if there's a pain there, and they'll just go on and on about, well, there was heat, and then there was pressure, and then it, it disappeared, and it became <laughs> gurgling. And, you know, they're not used to that kind of descriptions from people of their symptoms. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's one level of the kind of change we might notice. Or the Buddha taught that each moment of consciousness, and this is happening very quickly, that there's a pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feeling, and that we have no control over it, that there's that much change, moment by moment, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. This is a vast world of change. It's like a stream, a very quick stream of change, And because we tend to not be aware of it, when there's something unpleasant, we tend to push the experience away with aversion or withdraw from the experience with fear. And that withdrawal or the pushing away is what our suffering is because we can't flow with the truth of life, with the change. And if something pleasurable is happening and it passes, Because we don't see the change so clearly, we tend to hold on to the pleasant experience with attachment instead of just letting the change happening in life happen as it is. And it's that holding on where we suffer. So it's not the change in itself that's the problem, uh, but it's that inability to accept the change and the reaction to it is where we tend to suffer. We can go so quickly from things being so wonderful to horrible, or horrible to wonderful. Because of this change, we never know what's going to happen. And that's the dukkha, you know, um, the undependability of experience. Sometimes life can be so painful we can feel betrayed by experience itself. When my mother died when I was 13, I found that to be the most profound moment in my life where where before there was such an alive body and so warm and suddenly it was so cold and lifeless. It's like that woke me up more than anything that I could say has ever happened to me in my life. That, that change, our mortality, is, is such a powerful thing for us human beings. It's, it's really what calls us into any kind of questioning of life. Uh, it's really an important 
part of life, this, this change? And what does it mean? And why, you know, why are we here? What, what's going on? The Buddha's teaching doesn't deny the existence of pleasure. And it's, it's important that we realize when we open, we open to pleasure, and that pleasure is wonderful. And to be able to enjoy it while it's happening, we can enjoy this warmth of the summer, the sound of the birds. Uh, but what's being said is that there's no ultimate satisfaction in experience because we can't hold on to it. And this leads to this third characteristic of existence called anatta. Atta is self. Anatta means no self. There's a quotation from a Zen master, Koben Chino Roshi, that I like a lot. A student asked him, what does gate gate parasamgate bodhisvaha mean? And the Roshi answered, it doesn't mean anything actually. Everything is falling apart. Fall apart, fall apart, altogether fall apart. <laughs> we can't do anything about it. That's what gate gate means really. There is nothing to hold on to. Ultimately, this seeing clearly and, and lighting up what's happening helps us to see that this, this understanding or wisdom uh, means understanding there's nothing in this world that we can hold on to. And then how do we find a happiness in that? Where do we find the peace in that? And the, the peace comes from understanding it and then being able to be with it, with a balance, with equanimity, with peace. The understanding of this insubstantiality of experience makes it possible to experience life with space. It gives space to the mind, it gives space to the heart, it gives space around anything difficult. It brings an openness Because the awareness is no longer tied to the experience, but there's an awareness that's free with the experience. It can observe, it can have an openness around experience. And I see this just like if you had the beautiful day like today, like a beautiful blue sky. Experience from this perspective is like a cloud passing through the sky. And if you look at clouds, uh, they're very uh, light and they're very insubstantial on most. <laughs> I'd say in most days in Hawaii, that's how it is. <laughs> in New England, there tend to be some pretty uh, low fronts that come in for many, many days, which is kind of like our minds as well. But in terms of this metaphor, uh, if you think of being aware of sound, for example, and opening up the awareness to sound and letting it come and go. That metaphor is like the awareness is like the blue sky. And the sounds are like these clouds passing through the vast sky. All experience can be experienced that way. So the breath can feel like a cloud passing through the vast blue sky. Or an emotion such as anger can be experienced as this cloud just passing through the vast sky. And the awareness, as you can see, the awareness or the sky isn't affected by the cloud. It just passes through. Or thoughts can be seen as coming and going through this vastness of awareness. You can feel that space that comes with that, no matter what it is. And that's how we introduce sound and then the body, breath, thought, emotion, all of it, the non-doing awareness is just letting things be, letting them appear and disappear. And the, the more we have this awareness, we're not, we're not bothered by what appears and disappears. It really does just pass through like a cloud. Sometimes there'll be hurricanes, Sometimes there'll be 
beautiful days like today. And it's just all meant to be experienced because that's how life is. Again, there's that sense of the practice moving in the direction of a deeper kind of happiness that isn't based on experience, but it's based on this awareness that's able to relate to experience with freedom. So we don't change what's happening, but we change our relationship to what's happening through the power of the awareness. That's the beauty in the practice. In this equality of treating each moment equally, we start to experience the preciousness of each moment. It's like each moment is like a newborn baby. It's delicate and tender. And we start to be able to be interested and willing to explore life with this tender, fresh, newborn awareness. This ability to be here very fully, completely, like I said before, we get glimpses of it in these days that we practice. Any moment where we're really here, in that moment we're free of attachment, we're free of aversion, we're free of delusion, we're free. And we feel that lightness, like the emptiness of the blue sky. We feel a lightness, we feel a freedom. And it's worth any struggle for. It's worth going through anything for that freedom. In my own life, I've seen uh, such a change in that shift in the way that I relate to my experience, feeling like I went from being so imprisoned by experience to having more and more freedom with my life and experience. I have great faith in in the power of this mindfulness, this non-judgmental attention. And I've learned that If we can surrender and really experience one moment, that's all we can do. All you can do is live through a moment. And when you get that experience, you'll learn that you can live through another moment. And you can live through another moment with this this power of awareness. And the understanding is inevitable. It's just inevitable. It will come. You know, all you have to do is surrender to that process of just remembering every time you can to come back. It's just that simple to come back, to come back very lightly. It works. I'd like to end with a poem by Pablo Neruda. And I like it because it's about ordinary things and that way in which when we really pay attention to them, they uh, come alive. Ode to Things. I have a crazy, crazy love of things. I like pliers and scissors. I love cups, rings, and bowls, not to speak, of course, of hats. I love all things, not just the grandest, also the infinitesimally small, thimbles, spurs, plates, and flower vases. O irrevocable river of things, no one can say that I loved only fish, or the plants of the jungle and the field, that I loved only those things that leap and climb, desire and survive. It's not true. Many things conspired to tell me the whole story. Not only did they touch me, or my hand touched them, 
They were so close that they were a part of my being. They were so alive with me that they lived half my life and will die half my death. Let's sit for a few minutes. It's time for walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.